Hey everyone, welcome back to another season of Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky. On this show, we dive deep into how you can use data to measure, manage, and optimize your health with the latest science and technology. This show is brought to you by Heads Up, which is our web and mobile app designed for individuals and healthcare professionals who need a precise way to measure and manage health data. Check us out at headsuphealth.com. If you've got comments, questions, or feedback on this show, shoot us an email, support at headsuphealth.com. We'd love to hear from you. And with that said, let's get into our next exciting episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky. My guest today is Don Moxley, and Don and his company have created an incredibly exciting supplement product, one of the first I've seen that's directly targeted at improving heart rate variability, which in my opinion is one of the most important biomarkers that everyone should be familiar with and pay attention to on a day-to-day basis. Excited to learn about how the whole thing came about and get you educated on this product. I've been using it myself personally for the last three weeks, and it's now officially part of my stack that I take every night before bed. We've done a lot of testing on this product with Don to validate the efficacy of the product so we know it works. So we're going to dive in today and talk about uh, heart rate variability and then specifically how Don's company and his product can help you optimize HRV. If you measure HRV, you know that it's basically how you're going to perform day to day. That's pretty much it. So like if you want to wake up and kick maximum ass every single day, I engineer my whole routine around heart rate variability. That's it. So I was extremely excited to see this product come to life. Don, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Dave. I'm excited to be here. So Don, tell us about what led you to create this product. Well, I have a background. I have a long background in the using HRV. 30 years ago, when I worked for Polar, the heart rate monitor company, they had been launching products, and this is, this is before smartphones, and they had been launching products that used HRV and some of their features. And all of a sudden, I started to understand, okay, this is a valuable tool. Continued to evolve with it over the years, but uh, in 2015 through 18, I worked as a sports scientist with the Ohio State Wrestling Program. And we used HRV, and I'll send you a link to a presentation we did on that. But we basically used HRV and we learned to figure out that this could predict success for us at the national tournament that totally based on HRV scores, I knew who would be an All-American and who wouldn't. So we have that kind of a variable. You can then focus on that. You can build programming around that. So we did. We did a ton of it and it was very successful. While I was doing, while I was working there, I had friends in the industry that had worked out, reached out to me and asked about what I know about cannabis and HRV. And at the time, I I didn't know anything. You know, my guys are in CAA athletes and cannabis is not on the menu at that point, but started to do some research. And, you know, coincidentally, the universe led me into that role. So I wound up down in Florida as the director of applied science for a cannabis company down there and did a deep dive into understanding and learned this term that was called the endocannabinoid system, part of your central nervous system that is named after the cannabis molecule 
this should be taught in chapter two of exercise 101. The endocannabinoid system is where so much of the magic happens with exercise. Uh, when you exercise, you produce an endocannabinoid called anandamide. An endogenous one. An endogenous one, exactly. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting. So I continued to figure this out, and I worked on some combinations of cannabinoids and terpenes and had worked up some recipes. So I uh, moved forward a couple of years. I'm working with Longevity Labs. And um, Longevity Labs is a company that our, our main product is an autophagy product called Spermidine Life. And we saw people reporting. We were big in the biohacking community. We had people telling us, hey, this is helping my HRV. This is helping my sleep. So we started to explore that. And we said, you know what? Maybe it's time for a nutritional supplement directed towards HRV improvement. So we took the recipes that I developed working in the cannabis industry. We packaged them with in a different carrier oil. We packaged them in an omega-3 fat carrier oil instead of most cannabis is done in a coconut oil. We put this in an omega-3 and launched the product and have been very happy with the results we got. Wow. So your life experience, like you said, just kind of serendipitously led you down this path. You worked at Polar, which is all about heart rate measurement, heart rate variability measurement. So you had all that experience. Then you worked coaching athletes and you were probably one of the few people at that time who was astute enough to know the correlations between HRV and performance. And then you got into the cannabis research, and then you got the opportunity with Longevity Labs. It's like the whole thing really came together for you to apply everything you'd learned at each stop along that journey. Serendipity is a good word, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, it was really interesting. And when Daniel Dietz, the CEO of, you know, it, it was funny. When Daniel came to me, he's our CEO of Longevity Labs, and he said, yeah. so can we do a supplement? And I said, Daniel, I've already... You know, when I was in cannabis in Florida, my wife and daughter were still living back in Ohio. So I was essentially in a one-bedroom apartment down in West Palm Beach. And um, my kitchen looked like Breaking Bad. I mean, I had beakers and gram scales and the whole thing. I was, I was figuring out cannabis. And it doesn't take long to look at the, at the research and what's going on there to recognize. And again, the link to the endocannabinoid system, the link, and I think this is where it's valuable being an exercise physiologist and, and having a deep understanding of the physiology of exercise, you're able to pull in these tangential references to, uh, again, uh, whether it's anxiety or HRV or recovery or uh, stress or trauma, these things start to come into play and you start to recognize what's happening in the cannabis industry. You know, cannabis is an amazing tool when used correctly. But, but the challenge is, is that, you know, the cannabis industry, we legalize it on the back of cancer patients and epileptics, and then it immediately becomes an adult use rec community in the state. It's a race for THC. And everybody just overlooks these other long tail cannabinoids and terpenes. And I spent some time looking at that and it didn't take us long to figure out, okay, this makes sense. These two things go together. And um, so that's where the supplement came from. Awesome, man. I think you got a winner on your hands. You know, Heads Up has been a part of the um, integrative medicine community for many, many years. 
and we have been involved in a number of uh, conferences on functional oncology, which is treating cancer through basically non-chemotherapy-based intervention. Sure. A huge part of those conferences, and this is years ago, I was sitting in the audience listening to these speakers talk about specific strains of cannabis, specific types of terpenes, specific matching that you have to do based on the type of cancer you have to the type mm-hmm. of CBD or terpene profile. It's, it's pharmaceutical, it's, it's nutraceutical medicine, and there's, there's a lot of domain expertise. You can't just go buy the first cannabis product on the shelf at MedMen if you have cancer and it's going to work. You really need to know. It's almost like prescribing a drug. You, you have to know the type of cancer, maybe the genetic profile of the individual, and there's a really cool company we worked with, Endocana Health. You probably know those guys. Yep. And, and they help you do a genetic profile to determine how you're going to respond to cannabis. I have my stepmom, the tiniest little bit, and she's miserable. And then you, you have other people in the family who actually tolerate it extremely well. So we've seen it come up in the um, integrative medicine world. Also, like you said, the epilepsy world. We've done a lot with the Charlie Foundation. And um, their work in using cannabis for epilepsy. But, and like you said, in, in the recreational world, it's really about bringing products to market for consumers, which I love because you can go into a sophisticated cannabis shop now and they have whatever type of delivery mechanism you want. If you want a gummy, you don't want to smoke, you want to. So I think it's been made available recreationally. But what has been missing, Don, is people who are saying, how do we now specifically apply this to health optimization slash performance? Sure. That, that, that niche, I think, has been untapped. And I see that where you guys fit in perfectly. We see the same aspect as you. We think, you know, listen, this is our first swing at creating a, essentially a terpene-based uh, supplement. And I don't want to use the term medicine. I use the term supplement here. It's an optimization thing. And there's a lot here. And, you know, so we see the evolution in understanding HRV. You know, you started off talking about, listen, I believe the same we are. HRV is my key performance indicator. It's one of my tops. You know, it is, I call it the check engine light that, you know, where my tachometer or my speedometer may have more to do with heart rate or some other variable. When HRV is wrong, you need to dig in and figure out what's going on. And I'm, I'm excited for at some point in time between the work that you're doing and the evolution of the space, you know, I'm excited to go see my family doc someday and have him ask me about what my HRV data looks like over God the last bless. three months. Hallelujah. What does my CGM data look like rather than just depending on a once every three months or a once every six month blood check, which which frankly, you know, it just isn't dense enough. Well, it's a watered-down blood panel. They don't even really dig. Yeah. So I think I think there's some opportunity. And as as wearable technology improves, we're going to continue to see this evolve. You know, there's the challenge that we deal with now, and when we dealt with this with this study, is people are bringing devices to the platform that frankly are not proven that, you know, there's devices out there that say they measure HRV, but if you spend any time looking at the data, their standard deviation of error is way too big. I mean, it's like getting on a scale and saying, you know, I'm going to give you a weight. It's between 20 and a thousand pounds. Yes, it weighed me, but the data I got back from it is valueless. So 
as these devices improve, and you know, on most days I'm wearing three to four different devices, trying to figure out what I like, what I don't like, what I'm. This is the beauty. So we limited the study that we did with you guys to a, a certain group of units. Uh, we only used, you know, we only allowed, and you know, I had people asking about Apple watches and things like that, and I and I just said. You know, I, Apple is interesting. You know, I think there's some good data there, but I don't think it's being aggregated effectively yet. I don't think you no, can. Their HRV data is not really what I would call up to par with um, other stuff out there. You know, I'm starting to explore some apps that you can load on top of that Apple platform to see if that can clean it up. I'm just not there yet. But, you know, we did this study mainly using um, Aura Rings, BioStraps, and cardio mood. Those are the okay. three. Those are the three I would roll with. Yeah, that's what we went with. And you know what? It worked out pretty well. Awesome. So um, I want to get back to the testing that we we collectively did together in a minute here. But I want to just ping you on a few questions that sure. I think can be interesting for discussion. The first question, Don, in my opinion, is um, why aren't more sports teams, corporate wellness programs, Anything where there's a stake in the output of the, of the performance of the human, like how do you not know at this point in the game that like you have to be tracking this metric on your cohort? So let's approach that from a couple different directions. Let's start with athletics. Unfortunately, athletics is dominated by dogmented practices. Strength and conditioning is, is an incredibly dogmented, I'm a West Side guy, I'm a hit guy, I'm a this guy, I'm a that guy. It's not look, it's more about the practice than it is the results. Gotcha. And to put this in perspective, when I was with OSU Wrestling, you know, there was one point in time where I had three different strength coaches that were working with my team. I had a, a strength coach that was supplied by the university. I had a strength coach that was supplied that came via our Olympic training center and my Olympic gold medalist, the one guy I was working with, he had his own guy. And the staff came to me and said, which one should we use? And I said, don't pick, let the, let the athletes choose. Well, in 18, we qualified our entire starting lineup for the national tournament, 10 guys. The breakdown on strength coaches was three, three, and four. As evenly breaking as you can get on a 10-man roster, we had eight All-Americans, most in school history. The breakdown was two, two, and three. Three completely different programs dogmatically, okay? But what did we learn? We learned that get the weight room open, get the guys in. Once you meet some basic needs, quit arguing about, about you know, this is Catholic Baptist, okay? You both read the same book. Even though you're choosing to go to your own buildings and do things that you think are separate, it's largely the same process. So this was one of the things you, when you start to look at data objectively, these are the things that you learn. And so to go back, when you have dogmatism driving your belief systems, then they're not going to respond to change well. They're not going to understand new, they don't reach out to figure out. Listen, I had some people that were not happy when I told them that your program's no better than someone else's. It's the same thing. You know what? Because their ego is built on that. Their process is built on that. 
So I think that's the single biggest challenge to sports programs. And that is the ego and the dogmatism of the particular, whether it's strength and conditioning, whether it's athletic training, whether it's nutrition, any of those are going to struggle with the adaption and the adoption of new technologies that frankly may show them something isn't necessarily correct. Let me, and I'll go in, I'm going to throw one more piece in here. So with wrestling, we got to where we could predict success at the national level. My daughter just finished up as the director of player development for Northwestern women's lacrosse. They just won a national title about a month ago. And she was running HRV studies on those girls and she, I, I was talking to her. She, I'm in California right now. She helped me drive over. She said, dad, she says, I knew that if the team had a score of 60 or greater and, and first be used, it's not, that's not a, an RMSSD score. So I get it. It's, it's just the way they index said, I knew if we had a score of 60 or better, we'd blow a team out. If we were 50 to 60, it would be a good game. We'd do okay. If it was below 40, we'd lose. Oh, uh, man, I could not agree with you more. And I'm like, why is, oh, man, you can get, there's so much to get into there. But, like, that's what I'm saying is, like, anytime you have a vested interest in the output of any individual or group, like, it's such a strong predictor, and I just don't see enough people using it. I think it's, especially, okay, put athletics aside, right? Let's take a group of high-performing executives in a company. Sure. For example, would be a, a, another example. I don't see HRV being used at all. I have one company in Los Angeles that we're working with that's using HRV in a corporate coaching situation. But other than that, it's not out there. Yeah. All right. Well, anyhow, let's move on. But I just, I still to this day see that as like the greatest untapped potential in wanting to improve the performance of your cohort. You know, I interviewed a really cool uh, chiropractic doctor on my show up in Canada, Sachin Patel. And in Canada, you cannot, as a chiropractor, run labs for your patients. They're just not licensed to do it. And in Canada, there's not like it is here where you can just tell your patients to go order their own tests and do it themselves. So he's like, I needed a way around the system. You know, my hands were tied because I couldn't order any labs so he said, I used HRV to work around the system because that's the one metric I knew I could get from everybody sure. legally and I could calibrate everything for them in, in real time. So he's just using that as like his proxy metric for like, how are the health of my patients improving? You know, working around a regulatory system with HRV. So there's so many ways to use the number. I think that the potential in, in uh, corporate wellness uh, people who are trading money, anytime there's anything high stakes, high risk, high performance, like even when you go to the gym, like how much you're going to be able to lift, it's all, you know, it all ties back to that number at the end of the day. At least it does for me. Listen, I see similar processes. You know, listen, while it's a very old variable, it's a relatively newly understood variable. Completely. It's coming out of the obscure niches. You know, there's definitely teams that have been on this for a while. Look at Elite HRV, right? They got hundreds of thousands of people. So it's not like this is totally underground. It's just still, no. it's still niche. Well, it's niche. And again, so we'll step back towards athletics. Most coaches, other than the head coach, the head coach and the, and the assistants that answer are the ones that are really at threat from low performance. You know, no one else associated with the system. You know, if the head coach gets fired, 
strength coach stays in university, trainer stays in university, nutritionist stays. So that dogmatic nature of what they do stays there. Yeah. And at the same time, you've got universities that are scared to death of data. They're scared to death of being of taking on the responsibility of knowing, wait a minute, there might be something going here, which is a completely broken system. I mean, when that's the case, it's just flat broken. You know, so this is a lot that goes on. I do see it evolving. I do hear some people reaching out. I do hear some athletes. You know, I still have a group of athletes that I consult with. I'm not, no one that I'm running on a day-to-day basis, but, you know, I still have a, a group of people that come back to me time for time looking for advice. And literally they've learned, this is the, fr- they, they use it as their indicator. Listen, this has been down. What can I do? What's going on? Go through a series of questions, help bring it up. And um, it's an incredible KPI. Yeah, I also, Don, like yourself, I still coach a couple people on the side. I do it, A, because I love it, and B, because I also use it as a real field test of heads up software. That's how you learn, right? Yeah, the software, it has to work flawlessly for my use case, right? or we're going to go strangle the product team. So, um, you know, I have these poker players. The World Series of Poker is happening right now in Las Vegas. And I have these guys trained to maintain their HRV. They're acutely aware that, like, I'm going to be looking at that as soon as they sink the ring. And then what I also do is I say, how did you perform yesterday? Every morning. And then I look at, I correlate their subjective rating of their performance. And it's a one to five. Every day they rate their performance one to five. And we we cross-reference it with HRV. and. I've got them trained to do the same kind of coaching, basically. You know, there's other things we measure, but every day they know they're going to get a message from me at about nine in the morning. How did you perform yesterday? And what was your HRV? That's it. Ironically, we came to Southern California from Vegas and I was in Vegas for a couple of weeks and um, I was having dinner one night with a guy that plays in the World Series and he was aware of HRV, but he wasn't quite sure how to use it. And we're talking about, and I said, so tell me about what happens when you have a bad beat. And um, he says, I'm done. He says, as soon as that happens, I'm done. And so his HRV, his RMSSD score was in the mid thirties. And I said, that's your HRV. You work to get that number up and that bad beat will not impact you as much. Yep. And it was the first time that he was really able to put the two things together but um, yeah, listen, a lot of the HRV stuff came out of poker, especially the online stuff. I mean, that's where a lot of the research came from. So it's, it's a great application of that. Hey, next question for you, Don. So um, this is not necessarily related to your product. It's more of a cannabis question. Sure. So um, sometimes cannabis lowers HRV at night. You can have an anxiety and that's a THC thing. Like sometimes I smoke before bed. It actually makes me very relaxed. I come home from a long work day. I'm winding down at home. I'm starting to do my pre-bed ritual or my pre-bed routine. Or I'm going to go down to the pool and sit in the hot tub for a little while with a glass of wine. You know, all the things you do to wind down. And if I use cannabis, I feel physically much more relaxed. And I sleep very well. But my HRV is going to be lower. Now, that's cannabis. That's not CBD. And I'm just wondering if you can maybe educate us on, like, why that might happen and and what you might be able to do to mitigate or reverse so that you get the inverse effect. Well, 
THC is actually an anxiolytic to a certain degree. So THC will raise anxiety levels. And this is the challenge with the cannabis market right now, because again, the adult use rec consumer is buying based on, P on THC concentrations. And the fact is from a medicinal standpoint, very high CBD, CBDA, and I'm not a, I'm not a huge CBD fan. I'm a huge CBDA fan. Okay. I'm a huge THCA fan. Gotcha. So I, I love alcohol-based, ethanol-based extractions of both of those. So the THC can be a bit of an anxiolytic uh, gotcha. in, in a lot of people. So my recommendation, if that's happening, try and get a strain or start to bump what you're doing with CBDA. You'll see that balance come through. And maybe, Don, uh, that's a good segue. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how specifically you formulated HRV+. Plus. So HRV+, Plus, I, I went after two major uh, ligands, uh, CBDA and beta-caryophylline. Now, they're in there in essentially a one-to-one -one ratio with CBD. So CBD just kind of carried in. For CBD to really reach therapeutic levels, you've got to take almost five to ten times the amount that most people take. And frankly, that market is screwed up right now. You're paying $40 for something that should cost a nickel. And until that adjusts, that you're stuck with that. But so we formulated this. CBD doesn't even hang on a receptor. It plays a role in the metabolism, but it does not trigger a receptor. CBDA does. CBDA lands on CB2 receptors. It lands on 5-HT uh, dopamine receptors. It lands on TRIP-V pain receptors. So it lands, and so does beta-caryophylline. Beta-caryophylline plays, in a, it's called a dietary cannabinoid. It would be called a cannabinoid if it only showed up in cannabis, but beta-caryophylline comes from like black peppers and mangoes and things like that too. I was just reading in projectcbd.org online, they refer to it as the super terpene. So I, I love that terpene. It is very therapeutic. So when you're taking HRV+, plus, you're getting a nice dose, a known dose of CBDA and beta-caryophylline. You back this up with the omega-3 oils that we have, the omega-3 fats. Most people are deficient in them. So you get your omega-3s up, but we've also booted it up or spiked it with what's called specialized pro-resolving mediators. And these are the biologically available, these are the biologically available resolvents in the inflammatory pathway. So when you're injured or you have something like that and you take an, an inset like Advil or something like that, it blocks some of the enzymes that convert the omega-6 that become the inflammatory molecules. Well, it also blocks the omega-3s from becoming the resolvents. But we can now get uh, SPMs. We found these with a manufacturer in Spain. And so that's that combination. CBD, CBDA, beta-caryophylline, omega-3 fats, DHA, EPA, and specialized pro-resolving mediators, SPMs. That's kind of the package that comes together to improve endocannabinoid system tone and lower inflammatory markers, which inflammation drives poor hrv if you've got poor hrv you have an inflammatory issue somewhere yeah i absolutely love the whole concept the formulation and then uh, don you guys took it a step further than most supplement companies out there you said hey we don't want to just formulate this 
and make our claims based on what we know about these terpenes. Because that's how a lot of supplements are, are sure. marketed. They take the claims from the raw ingredients that may not even be the, the same type of raw ingredient, but then they make marketing statements based on research done on raw ingredients, which is very different than what the efficacy will be when those raw ingredients are packaged in a product. So heads up and um, longevity labs, we work together to do a study to validate this. And we did it with, you mentioned, uh, what is arguably considered the top sensors on the market for HRV. We used uh, Aura Ring, we used BioStrap, and we used CardioMood. And we did a decentralized uh, clinical trial, basically. Open label trial, yep. Tell us about how that project was engineered, because I think it's important for people listening to know that you guys really went and put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, we had early feedback from our sample runs that we did that, wow, people were seeing a great response in sleep. And you can't fix HRV unless you fix sleep. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. So we knew that was happening. We were getting some early HRV data, but we just wanted to do a more comprehensive look. We wanted to raise the end. So we invited novices. So we did this with people who had not taken the supplement, but did have a history of HRV measurements from their wearable devices. They agreed to be in the study. They did a quick interview to make sure they were a right fit. And then we sent them a bottle of HRV plus they followed. And then we started following their data on a daily basis. And we looked at the average of their HRV for 45 days before they started the supplement. Then we looked at the average of their HRV for the 30 days after they used the supplement. We saw a nice little response. We saw about a 12% improvement in HRV. Mm -hmm. So the average went from RMSSDs of about 78 up to about almost 80. We saw some really good movements in that. Ironically, we did not see movement in sleep scores or in morning readiness scores. Now, that could have more to do with the algorithm that they use to calculate that than the actual results, but we did not see that. But the thing that was just wonderful is we used the WHO wellness questionnaire. It's a well-validated wellness questionnaire. Everyone completed it before and after, and we saw an 18%, almost 18.5% improvement in 30 days just on that wellness questionnaire. So we saw 12% improvement in the objective HRV data. We saw 18.4% improvement in the subjective data. So listen, we know what people are telling us, love the product. Listen, we had a couple of non-responders too. Don't let me leave you under the impression that everyone got the response. We actually, of the first 20 in the first cohort, we had about three or four that did not respond. We have occasionally, we have someone who does not do well with the product, which we address right away. and, And we understand that that happens with cannabis from time to time. But overall, when you look at that, you know, listen, when you can throw a single supplement at a population and get a 12% move in HRV, 18% move in overall wellness, I'll take that every day. Well, I had a nice improvement in my own numbers. What I had to do actually was dial back the dosage a little bit. So I started with um, three capsules and that was a little bit uh, too heavy for me. So I backed down to one. And then I went up to two. 
and I'm just about to graduate up to three. So I had to titrate up a little bit, and that may have just been based on my own unique physiology. And I'll tell you, probably a third of the people we work with have to play with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's not that straight three tablets. Yeah. And, you know, ironically, so, we, you know, my daughter who uses it uses one, and I have a lot of females that are using one tablet, gel cap, and they do great on that. I take eight. I'm a big guy, and I had some alternative. I was trying to see if I could pee a hot test on this thing, but eight is my dosage. So figuring out when, and we find a lot of males, if they're not getting with three, we move them to four or five a day, and they get the re- the reaction they want. you're looking for. So you got to play with that. Yeah, I'm ready to pump mine up a little bit. I also know females taking your product that are at seven. So really? that's, again, it's all very in of one. And um, there's a little bit of uh, work to do there. So um, you've got to play with it a little bit. So um, done. The product is now officially part of my nightly stack. Well, thank so you. I, I, have, I have my ritual that I do every night before bed. There's a couple supplements I take. There's uh, a meditation process I go through. There's, there's setting the PEMF. You know, there's a bunch of things. Put the aura ring on. Put the cardio mode on. You know, I have my little... Um, routine that yeah. i go through but um you know it's it's now officially um into my stack my team here at heads up also the same it's for the guys who really uh, are monitoring and tracking hrv it's part of their stack i think you really hit the market at the right time with the right product i think there's a growing increase in, in understanding of hrv among the general public mostly because everybody's wearing the devices that track it like I sink my ring in the morning. I don't give a shit about any number in there except the HRV. That's actually the only thing I really look at. You know, I'll, I'll glance at like some of the other stuff, like the sleep contributors and things of that nature. But um, it's primarily HRV. So I think you're timing it perfect. I think it's a good start. I'll tell you, HRV. So when, when we talk about HRV, just for the novice out there, we're talking about what's called the root mean square or this is the vagal tone measure that most people recognize. I'm actually talking to a couple different companies. There's another group of measures that can come from an HRV measure that are called frequency measures. And this is low frequency, high frequency, very low. These can be very good numbers, but they they are not easy to get from wearable tech. Gotcha. So I'm talking to a couple companies that look like they are on the verge of being able to pull this off. And as they do, I would encourage people to start to take a look at this. You know, there's a great company from out here in California that's called HeartMath. Yeah, we know those guys really well. Love their tech, love what they do. The challenge is they're not necessarily as portable. They're not as wearable as an Aura Ring or a Cardio Mood or something like that. So as these technologies continue to improve, and we're, we're on the front end of this curve, dramatically on the front end. I think you're going to see that move along. I see a lot of people in this space that are doing good things that you can use HRV to measure. You know, our mutual friend, Patrick Porter, yep. with his brain tap device, they do a nice job. But I see Chuck coming in there saying, "I Chuck, I could not find those frequencies in that app, but we'll talk more about that. But when we're, I, we're on the front end of this, and again, you know, the thing, Dave, is that we are learning that our traditional healthcare system is designed to bring someone from like minus 10 to zero. 
Okay. Yeah. Very little of healthcare is about going from zero to 10. That's a really, really elegant way to put it, Don. Sorry to interrupt you, but like of all the podcasts I've done, that was a beautiful analogy. <laughs> well, it's not mine. That comes from a psychologist at the University of Chicago, Howard Seligman, who yeah. is the father of positive psychology. This came out of his book, but I see it happening in this wellness space as well. And this is where functional medicine comes into play. This is where a lot of these tools come into play. And we started off this podcast with, I can't wait for my doctor to ask me for my HRV data and my CGM data before they go to look at hemoglobin A1C or some other cardiac marker. I believe we're on the verge of that. And these are tools to help with that. Hey, you know, Don, uh, one thing that would be fun would be for us to, like, come up with some uh, algorithms that computer uh, derived score off both of those numbers. You know, like some representation of your, your trailing glucose over the last little while, or maybe some metric of glucose like uh, your standard deviation or whatever the case might be. There's a formula out there somewhere that could potentially combine both. This would be for the hardcore gearheads out there. Like me yeah. and you really want to look at that, but that'd be awesome. I think so. You know, I was meeting with a company yesterday that had been using galvanic skin response and HRV and so forth, and they were trying to calculate a cortisol load, and they've they've decided to move away from it because you just can't get the two tied together. But I think that I agree with you. I believe the evidence is there. We have to come up with a mechanism for capturing it in an objective manner that we can then scale. Yeah. So I, like I said, I think, again, you're in a great position where you're at, you're sitting there on top of a bunch of data as you start to tighten. You know, when I was down at KetoCon down in uh, Austin, Texas, a couple months ago, you know, I came across a group, they've got a continuous ketone monitor now that you wear like a continuous glucose monitor. And, you know, yeah. we're dying to find autophagy markers, you know, easily accessible autophagy markers. I think we're going to have something to say about that relatively soon. But listen, ketone should be a proxy measure for autophagy. Autophagy is a proxy measure for inflammation. Okay. If you have high inflammation, you have low autophagy. You raise your autophagy, you lower inflammation, which results in an improved HRV. It's how that ecosystem comes together. And I think we're at the front end of this, and I'm excited about the future. Hey, you know what, Don? One of my favorite things in the world is when I've got a quiet weekend at home. I don't have to travel. I don't have a lot of plans. I'll do a 72-hour fast, and I'll wow. start tracking my glucose and my ketones. I track both uh, blood ketone. I use the Keto Mojo, and mm -hmm. I also track the breath ketones and glucose and and I watch my body get to a point where actually the glucose and the ketones flip. And there's actually more ketones in my body than there is glucose. My ketones will be north of four millimolars per liter. And, and that's less than the amount of glucose in my body. And um, I got to tell you, those weekends, like if you're listening, you've ever done a 72-hour or a longer-term fast, your neurotransmitters in your brain just go into like, uh, hyper awareness, hyper euphoria mode. So um, a good 72 hours, one of my favorite things to do. And then um, I'll stack it with other things like some uh, nootropics and stuff like that. So uh, one of the best natural 
do you see your HRV running opposite of your ketones? You know, that's a really good question. Just based on the last 72 hour I did. So night one, HRV was uh, at baseline. Night um, two, it actually um, went down. So I was starting to see a little bit of a stressor once I was 48 hours plus into the fast. Sure. And then uh, I obviously day three is, is when I'll come out of the fast. And then I, I haven't gone back to look retroactively at it. But the whole point is I like putting my body into those really just pulsing it in like once a quarter into those really extreme states of autophagy and just going and flushing out the plumbing in there and uh, rebooting the whole system. So listen, I think that's critical. I mean, but people need to realize if you're an aggressive faster, your HRV, listen, when you fast, the body recognizes it's starvation. It dumps cortisol. It releases existing energy stores. The cortisol is going to drive HRV. And toxins too. You're breaking yes. down fat molecules. You're breaking down toxins as well. So like it's a stressor, but um, for me personally, right, this is different. And I've done several of these fasts now. So the first one I did was awful, but I'm, I'm at the point now where my body actually loves it. Like I'll see a small decrease in HRV, but most of the time I, my energy levels are off the charts. My thinking capacity, I feel 10x better when I'm 48 hours fasted than I do when I'm eating, which doesn't make a lot of sense intuitively, but just how it is. Thank you, beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's what's <laughs> going on. Yeah, amen to that. Hey, let's answer Michael's question here. Yeah, um, he fire says, away. Take it, Don. He's interested in knowing more about the typical actions which someone can take based on the output monitoring of HRV. So what are typical actions? So I talk about the four rocks in the jar for longevity, and these, these apply to HRV as well. So HRV is the measurement in the difference in times between heartbeats, okay? So the more you can expand the distance between heartbeats to create opportunity for variability, the better. So the more cardiovascularly fit you are, the lower your resting heart rate, the more opportunity you have for improved HRV, okay? So that's potential. That's So if I want to raise my potential HRV, I start by improving my cardiovascular fitness, and I see that in a drop in my nighttime resting heart rate. So you're running, you're going, you're doing things that are going to make you sweat hard. I don't run. Rate. I don't but, run, okay? But, but I'm saying in general, you want to do something, you're going to work hard enough, you're going to exert hard enough, that it's going to strengthen the heart muscle, you know, for 10, 20, 30 minutes. How would you describe it, Don? Dave, I'm an advocate of zone two, zone three training. So when you look at your heart rate monitor, you have five zones. You look, break it into the five zone system. Training in zone two and three, you get the mitochondrial benefits. You get the enzymatic benefit. You do not get cortisol. So when you're training hard enough that you're touching zone four and zone five, you're creating cortisol, which is going to create a sympathetic response. If you'll do your cardiovascular training or the majority of it below zone three, you get the benefits, you get the mitochondria, you get the enzymes, you get the buildup, but you don't pay the cortisol price. So this is huge for me. Yeah, I'm going to be paying the cortisol price tonight, Don, because I do a Friday night uh, hot Bikram yoga workout. Well, there you Which go. Which means for 90 minutes, I mean, 105 degrees, and it's like, you know, the heart rate is up there in the high 170s, 180s. But I know I'm going in there 
specifically to do that. There's also days where I know I'm just going to go onto the stair climber or the treadmill and set a nice incline and keep my heart rate at like 140 for like 30 to 45 minutes, which is more like what you're talking about. Well, Dave, I'll tell you, when you're doing hot yoga, listen, I've spent a lot of time looking at this. I mean, when I get into a sauna, you know, I live in an RV now and I have an infrared sauna in my RV that only goes to 140 degrees, but it's, it does enough. When I'm in a, in the sauna that I really like, my traditional sauna, I'm usually in for like 205 degrees for 45 minutes. Solid. But I'm not moving, and I'm not convinced there's a cortisol response. There's certainly a heart rate increase because yeah. it's going to increase circulation, but I'm not sure we're dumping cortisol. So I, somewhat, I need to study that a little bit more. So I'm not entirely sure your Bikram yoga is going to cause a cortisol response. A CrossFit workout will. Well, you know, the yoga workout is also something that for me is deeply meditative. So even though I'm doing something physically demanding, obviously I have no weights. I'm working with my own body. I'm breathing through my nose the entire time. People don't realize, like, it's hot in there and you're working hard, but you're breathing through your your heart is pounding, but you're breathing in and out through the nose only. So you don't have a high oxygen CO2 respiration going on. If your breathing's limited, if, you, if you're able to do that, but you do have high heart rate for circulating heat, managing heat. I get that. So to go answer your question, I'm not sure the Friday night Bikram yoga is going to cause the cortisol response. The CrossFit workout will. The running, it's very difficult to run. Most people do not have a fitness level that they can run in zone three. Yeah. Most people run in zone four. And they just beat themselves up. I love cycling more than running because you can cycle for a long time and not tear yourself up. So going back to Michael's question, it starts with your base fitness. Number two, you've got to have the nutrients necessary to meet the body's need to either build or break down. So a nutrient-dense diet is critical. Number three, if you want to raise HRV, you have to fix sleep. Sleep is when you recover, it's when you regenerate, it's when you reload the resources in the system. You have to have good sleep. And then my fourth big rock, the thing that I do, and I actually see a nice little um, HRV pop with mine, is I do red light therapy. So I have a red light system. I have a red light system, and that's a very healing modality. So those things are tools that I will use, Michael, but it starts... Listen, if you don't have good cardiovascular fitness, you don't have much potential to move the HRV. You improve your cardiovascular fitness, less beats per minute, more space between beats, you have more potential to improve. Nutrients, key nutrients. And your key nutrients, the one you're lacking in. So you got to figure that out. Everybody's a little different there. Sleep is critical. Fix that sleep environment. And that's what we did with my athletes. That was the big thing. We used a lot of sensory deprivation floating. The float tanks. Float tanks move the needle on HRV. They're they're wonderful. You know, uh, we talked about the brain tap. The brain tap is a good tool. It's a good meditative device. I like HeartMath. They have a good biofeedback based uh, meditative system. Straight meditation is great. Don't get. I'm not going to minimize that at all. Michael, be careful because it may take some time for that practice to kick in. For instance, when we would do floats. The HRV during the float sometimes would drop, but the next day we'd get a super compensation bump from it. Nice. So yes. it takes time for the physiological trigger to kick in. Yep. 
You know, you elegantly explained why. I have always heard from many people that increasing your cardiovascular fitness is one of the best ways to do it. It was good to get the explanation on the why, which is you're creating more possibility because you right. have a, that was really helpful for me. I just didn't fully understand the why. So um, anyhow, Don, this product that you developed is going to keep getting better and better. And uh, I'm sure that you're going to cover undercover more opportunities, like you said, just being able to start looking at some of these more subclinical uh, variations and frequencies of the HRV is going to help you as well. So I think uh, we're just at the beginning of the journey here. Uh, quick from Michael, thank you for answering my question. He prioritizes one, two, and three. I suppose, if anything, I probably overtrained. Yeah, there you go. Well, and I'll tell you, it's not about, and Michael, I want to be careful here. I don't believe in the term overtraining. There's maladaptive training and there's adaptive training, okay? Mm -hmm. If you'll drop your training down into that two, three, it's difficult to overtrain. There's a benefit that comes from it all the time. Overtraining is a cortisol trigger. So that anytime that you're driving a lot of cortisol, you've got to bring that down. You do that below zone three, three, three and below. So start to shift. You know, there's a really good guy, Alan Cousins. If you train and you want to follow a good guy on social media, there's a guy out of, out of Boulder. His name's Alan Cousins. He does a brilliant job of coaching with distance athletes, cyclists, triathletes. But this applies to all sports and all humans. And he's even more dramatically pushing towards zone one, zone two. And, you know, once you step into athletics, particularly recreational athletics, it becomes a problem. But, you know, that's um, for what it's worth, Michael. Thanks for asking. Thanks for listening. Well, the problem, Don, is you got the junkies like us. You know, we just like to go in there and destroy ourselves. You know, it's a high. At some point, it is a high. You it know makes what I mean? dopamine. But, but, it makes dopamine. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's that part of it, which is just like, you know, there's the part of you that really just goes into the gym and like really likes to just work really fucking hard. So like you got to balance all that stuff out, but you got to have that other form of training in there. And then you got to also have the rest of your modalities ready. You got to have your meditation game. You got to have the HRV plus. You got to know how to take the nervous system down. That's actually a skill, you know, central nervous system management and intellectually knowing how to be in tune with where your nervous system is at. There's actually a lot of things you can do. Like for me, one of the biggest therapies for me, red light being one, the other one is water. I strategically use water, uh, jacuzzi, steam sauna, swimming pool. So there's lots and lots and lots of things you can do to um, make sure that you're keeping things in balance, even if you do go in there and like, like to destroy yourself every once in a while. Yeah, I think I've gotten past that, you know. I haven't, Don. I'm working on it. I'm in a support group, but, uh, you know, I haven't really gotten over it yet. I think I've passed that, so I'm okay with that. But, you know, we'll see. I'm sure it'll come up. You know, listen, when you compete in Big Ten wrestling, okay, back then it was it was balls to the walls 24-7, okay? You, there was It was unrelenting. Yeah. And I remember, so I wrestled nationals my senior year. I fly home from Oklahoma City. I empty out my wrestling bag. I fill it with spring break clothes. We fly to Florida. I'm drunk for 10 days straight, fly back to Columbus, and I'm sitting there on my bed about a week afterwards, and it's the first week in my life, and it's my first week in the last three years that I didn't train for wrestling every day, every day. Again, I separate out the Fort Lauderdale, but I, I remember sitting on my bed 
I used to finish practice with five ice bags, usually two shoulders, two knees, and an elbow. And I remember waking up in the morning thinking, I don't hurt. <laughs> I've not felt this in a long time. And I kind of liked it. So as I started to pour myself into other activities, I started doing a lot of cycling. That's the beauty of cycling. You can go ride your bike for five hours and not be beat up. I mean, you may be drained, but you won't be beat up. I rehydrate, I refuel, and I can go ride my bike again the next day. So that's that, that's kind of that was my learning situation again you know eight knee surgeries later and and all the things that go with competing that level you learn to mitigate and control that a little bit more you know don you touched on it briefly but i want to come back and put a little bit of emphasis on what you talked about with um, heart mass with Mm -hmm. um, coherence training and what you briefly mentioned with um various forms of meditation meditation is hard for a lot of people who think that they have to sit there and keep their eyes closed and breathe which which you do but it's hard i've gotten really good at it over the years but i want to talk more about uh, the importance of nose breathing i want to talk see if you have opinions like for example mouth tape when you sleep emphasizing during the day to breathe through the nose uh, different types of breath work you can do there's a lot of different ways to breathe where you're learning to control breath or prana. So can you share any best practices, Don, on on breathing? My recommendation is keep it simple. So if you just simply adopt, okay, first of all, when I would put my guys into float tanks, I would not put a guy in a float tank until they finished at least five days of the Headspace app. Beautiful. I'd make them load Headspace on their phone because when you get in that tank, literally you're in there and all you have are your thoughts, your breath and your heartbeat. That's it. Yeah. You might wake up. Yeah. Well, and I had some guys that struggled with that. So, and meditation is a skill, just like any other skill. It's a skill. That was brilliant. Wasn't it? But, um, so I'd always start in there, but the other thing that we taught was what we called recovery breathing. So the literature is pretty clear. Six breaths a minute, five seconds in, five seconds out, has a nearly ideal response on parasympathetic boosting, on raising. Yeah, you know, sorry to interrupt you, Don, but there's actually meditations and mantras, chanting, that keep you at that six breaths per minute level. So, listen, you can do it with your Apple Watch. You can do it with, there's a lot of, so start there. Now, I'll tell you, Dave, what we did with the wrestling team was when we were beginning our warm-up, Prior to practice, we put a clock on the wall with a second hand. One of my alumni, Dr. Ron Garbo, gave it to us. And and Ron is a pain management doc and an HRV guy out in the Virginia Beach area. So we did, I said, I want six breaths, one minute of your time. We would do that while they're warming up. So we learned to do breathing while they moved. And then at the end of practice, when they were laying down, the coaches and their talk, I would take another minute, another six breaths. Give me six breaths. It was so cool to watch my athletes. I had an athlete wrestling in the national finals. He goes out of bounds. We used to teach um, body position as far as a parasympathetic boost, like Superman pose, you know, head up, chest back, arms back. This kid goes out of bounds. He's in a Donnybrook in the finals, head, shoulders back. I see him catch two rescue breaths on the way back to the middle of the mat. So he gained an advantage through the practice of recovery in the middle of the match in the national finals. Huge advantage, like just knowing how to get a recovery breath and, you know, even knowing, okay, I've got 
30 seconds here to catch my breath. I need to control the inhale and the exhale. It's going to be a little uncomfortable, but I got to inhale slower than my body would want. And then exhale a little slower than the body would want. And like you get that recovery breath and it's an advantage. If you're practiced, you don't even think about it. Okay. Again, critical thing for athletic performance is staying in flow, staying in zone, staying in on concentration on the task at hand. So this is critical for the flow state. So you want to wire these skills in before you get there. So again, he had done this in practice so many times yeah. that when he came in off the mat, it was just his natural response. It's instinctively, it clicked in. Yeah. Yeah. The same as walking. I mean, you don't have to think about walking to the center of the mat. That's wired in. And as you practice these recovery breathing and this stuff, and again, he gained an advantage right there. Was it critical? Who knows? But you want to, I mean, at that level, you want everything you can get. I practice recovery breathing when I'm really putting myself in challenging training situations. So, for example, I'll do a heavy set on back squat, for instance, and I'm gassed after the set. But I just kind of stand there at the squat rack, I close my eyes, and I really concentrate on getting the recovery breaths. Or I'll put myself in an isometric hold where I set a timer for 60 seconds and I'm going to hold isometric for 60. The only way I'm going to make it to 60 is if my eyes are closed and I'm controlling my respiratory rate. I can do a 60-second hold exactly six breaths in and out. And you're shutting down the voice in your head that says quit. Exactly. So like I practice that when I, when I, anytime I do something that challenges my cardiovascular, where I feel like I'm breathing heavy, Yeah. anything in day-to-day -day life, you practice it. You know, I teach uh, Kundalini yoga, which is a lot of, uh, it's yoga for the mind. And it's a lot about learning how to control breath and actually controlling breath is controlling life. And when you can control your breath in a, in a difficult situation, you control the situation. You know what the Sanskrit for yoga means? To yoke the mind to the body. That's what yoga means. So it is a somatic meditative environment, but you're putting movement into it. That's the beauty of it. And I think let's, it's also a flow environment. I don't know if you study flow as described by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi or Stephen Kotler. Yeah. Okay. So these are critical flow environments and it's critical that you keep concentration at the task at hand. You got to build those skills so that when you're under channel, totally. under challenge, you pull them in. So I, I'm a huge flow guy. Listen, if you don't enjoy what you do, you won't keep doing it. So the hard stuff, you got to figure out how to make it enjoyable. And most of it is, you know, you can enjoy standing on the side of the mountain 30 degrees below zero if you make a wrong step you fall it may not be pleasurable but it will be enjoyable and this is what's so important well and then you got guys like us who are entrepreneurs who are basically out there taking insane risks and living day to day in situations that most people would not be able to handle because there's so much risk in what i do every day so i I practice in the gym learning how to be comfortable in situations that are uncomfortable because when I wake up in the morning and I go to build a company, you're dealing with risk every day. You have to learn how to enjoy things that make other people uncomfortable. It's just reality. Do we have to call it insane risks? I mean, there's a certain level of sanity there. I love it. So for me, it's actually, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing, yeah. but, but I know for a lot of people, it's like, 
yeah, there's danger there. You got a gun to your head, so um, you got to be just a little bit, you know, a little off. Yeah. But um, I'm okay with that. Me too. It's the greatest compliment you can give me is when you tell me I'm crazy. Actually. Well, there, there's a fine line between insanity and genius, and you just got to matter. You got to stay on the right side of it. Yeah, fair enough. Well, hey, yeah, we could jam forever here, Don. I think we're way over on time, so uh, we should probably call it. But uh, tell us where to get the product and anything else you want to leave the listeners with. So go to modemethod.com, M-O-D-E-M-E-T-H-O-D.com, modemethod.com. That's where you find HRV+. Plus. If you want to learn more about autophagy and longevity, you can go to our website, spermidinelife.us. That's where you find, we can't put the two products on the same website because of cannabis restrictions, but modemethod.com for HRV plus, spermidinelife.us for our spermidine products. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on all the socials, LinkedIn, I, you know, Don, I'm Don Moxley on, on most of that. For the other Don Moxleys in the world that want to have that as a social, I'm, I've just been way ahead of them. They're posers, wannabes. They may have something going, but it's not me. No. And we'll be seeing Don at the conference if you're at the biohacking conference in Orlando, which is coming up June 22 to 24. And I'm doing a talk on both of these. So I'm doing a talk on all this at the conference. Awesome. I think my talk is Friday. All right. Well, uh, thank you for pioneering this, Don, on behalf of everyone here at Heads Up. I appreciate that. And we wish you guys the best success. And uh, hopefully we'll have another opportunity to uh, chat more with you, Don. This is a great interview. Listen. I'm, we're so thankful to work with a company like yours to have the ability. Trust me, I've done dashboard development. I've done data management. What you guys do with Heads Up Health is special. And I'm looking forward to watching you guys grow in the future. It's a labor of love, my friend. All right, signing off. We'll see you. Thank you for listening to Data Driven Health Radio. 